You're listening to GNU World Order, episode 22 for season 13, for day 146 of 2019. Hey everybody, my name is Klaatu, and this is GNU World Order. You might be wondering how I knew it was day 146 of 2019. I knew because of the Cal application on Linux, and that's really convenient because that's exactly what we're talking about today. Well, not just the Cal application, but the, the set of applications bundled along with util Linux in user bin. And that starts out with Cal, C-A-L, calendar. So I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Before I do that, before I jump into util Linux, I want to editorialize a little bit. Specifically, I want to talk about the desktop. This is a hot topic. Linux desktops, desktop computing. People are talking about this. Now, the first thing that annoys me a little bit is this, this feeling and the the assertion, I guess, in, in lots of high places, that the Linux desktop is not important. It's not an important thing. We should not be focusing on the Linux desktop. It's, it's time has come and gone. It didn't work. Let's walk away from it. And you can see this at a lot of different places. I mean, Red Hat famously ended Red Hat Linux. They don't have Red Hat Linux anymore. They have Fedora. That's what they, they spun off Red Hat Linux and said, hey, community, take this user-centric distribution over. And that's what has happened. Fedora has taken the the code base for Red Hat Linux. Now, I'm not talking about Red Hat Enterprise Linux. I'm talking about Red Hat Linux, which was their, their specific, you know, targeted to the home user Linux desktop. That's Fedora now. Does Fedora do a good job at it? I'd argue not really. I love Fedora. I've run it. I, I ran it up until just a couple of months ago, pretty actively. And and I'll probably run it again. It's my go-to other distribution. The problem with it for me right now is that it, it's breakneck speed. It develops very, very quickly, and that's kind of the niche it has come to fill. It is Fedora Linux. It is first. It has features. It is friendly, and it is something else. That's that's its thing, and to me, that's not really a, a desktop distribution that a home user should should really be using. That That goes a little bit too fast I think for for normal home users, I could be wrong. You can argue that point. I wouldn't really defend it all that much. It's just kind of where I am right now. I might change that outlook later. I certainly had a very different outlook five years ago. I, I thought Fedora was great, and I loved that breakneck neck, breakneck speed. I thought it was really fun. It's just I've my needs have changed. My my view has changed. So not sure if Fedora is the answer. Ubuntu, you might say, well, there's Ubuntu, right? Well, if you go to the Ubuntu site, and I've said this before, and I know that this is a random today on the 146th day of 2019, let's go to ubuntu.com and criticize their front page. It, it's going to change by, by next week, so it does, this, this is only an example. But if you go to ubuntu.com, I think in general you will find a de-emphasis of the desktop product. I mean... Really, go to Ubuntu.com. The the headings are Enterprise, Developer, Community, and Download. It, it's talking about the latest release, which, as of this recording, is 1904. Like I say, this is one day 146 of 2019, so 1904 just came out last month. Whatever a month is. Scroll down a little bit. There's a bunch of talk about Kubernetes. There's the talk about stuff in the cloud, and so on. Not really a mention of the desktop until a couple of screenfuls down, you get kind of a nod towards the fact that they have a desktop distribution out there that you could use but the the emphasis of the of the the front page at least is all about the cloud stuff which i understand cloud is is pretty popular right now 
and uh, here, here it is. So Ubuntu.com/desktop would be what you would want to want to send people to, I guess. But I mean, that's a little bit tough, right? I mean, that's that kind of. I would argue that that sort of pushes my point that that the desktop is not the default selection anymore on Ubuntu.com. And Ubuntu was was the Linux for humans. That was the big one. That was the one that that was going to be the the big killer of all the other OSs, and it was doing really, really well uh, for a while, and, and for whatever reason, probably financial, they wandered away from the desktop and, and wandered off into the cloud, because that's where Linux makes its money. That's where it really, really shines. I think there's a profound irony here, and that is because wandering away from the desktop means that you're wandering away from everyday users, and when you do that, then when those everyday users turn grow up and, and stop being teenagers and they become people who are going into co into university and then they're going into the workforce they form their sites they 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 set their sights on on what their experience has been and as a as a young person your experience is the desktop in front of you that's your computer and if you can run Ubuntu or Fedora or whatever on that computer, then when you go to university, you've still got that in your head. Maybe you're ha maybe you're forced to use a little bit of a, something else at university. Maybe you stand strong and you refuse to use something else at university. Either way, you get out into the workforce and you're told, "Hey, I need you to set up a server now." What do you go to? Well, if you've had experience with Linux throughout the past five years of your life, seven years of your life, whatever it's been, then your go-to is that Linux distribution. If it's been Ubuntu, then you go to Ubuntu. If it's been Fedora, you go to Fedora. And I think that has borne itself out. I think we see that today in, in real life. I, I, I believe that, that if you go to a, a place that is building infrastructure and you look at what they're using, you'll see a lot of Ubuntu on, on infrastructure stuff now because people grew up with Ubuntu. They, they've had they've had Ubuntu for quite some time now. People got experience with it, and then they discover that hey, I can use the same Ubuntu that I was using on my PC on the server in the server room. This is great. This is super easy. I'll do that, and they do. They do that, and I don't know why, for instance, Red Hat doesn't doesn't take that as a cue. Maybe if we if we make Fedora or Fedora, I guess, but I mean especially Rel, if we made the Red Hat desktop a thing then people would grow up on that. That would be their experience that they would bring to them, uh, with them, rather, to university and to their workplace, and then they would install that distribution instead of this distribution. So I don't know. There's, there seems to be a blind spot, but I'm not a business person, as I've said very frequently, and so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not understanding. Maybe I'm looking at the small, you know, looking at the small stuff, and, and everyone else has their eyes on on the big picture that I that I'm not able to see because I'm not a business person. I don't I don't have I don't see into the million dollar deals being made in boardrooms or wherever those sorts of deals are being made. Either way, I think that the desktop is in fact important and I think that the flippant sort of well the desktop is kind of dead, it's not really that important. I think that's really kind of as missing out on those early planting those early seeds of 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 ability, really, to enable people to continue that knowledge into into their professional lives. But there's another angle to this, and, and the angle is that it's not just the Linux desktop that is being declared dead at this point. Everyone's declaring the desktop in general to be dead. And I realize that what they're really saying is that is that there is now more diversity in the technology space. 
the personal computer used to be the thing. That was all the technology anyone had. And even for a little while, there were there were PDAs, like the Palm Pilot, and there were Blackberries and things like that that, that got people sort of... They, they, they got the ability to do a little bit of something here and there. But now, I mean, really, the, the mobile space has taken off, and people supposedly are doing quite a lot of work just on mobile. Now, I don't know how much real work they're doing on mobile. I, I think that they're they're doing what I would consider administrivia and entertainment on mobile. That that to me is different than actual in the trenches kind of work. That's probably a debate for some other time though. Point being, the pe- people who say that the desktop is dead are really just saying, I think, well there's this other thing as well. Because Really, if you look at it, if you think about it, when you say the desktop is dead, if you ever utter that in real life, then you should take your computer, go and sell it, or give it to your to your op to the nearest um, thrift store, store, and switch to Chrome OS, right? Because you've you've just said that the desktop is dead, so you don't need it anymore. So you can just switch to Chrome OS, and you'll be perfectly fine. So few people actually do that. It's one of those things. Well, it's it's like everything else in technology. People make these loud declarations about how this or that has has finally lost their support, and so they're going to change. They're going to switch away from it once and for all. And then you wait for the shoe to drop, and it never drops. Lots of empty threats are made in the technology consumer space. I find, and I think that the the death of the desktop is one of those empty threats. People declare that it's dead and that they never use it, and yet people still manage to run a desktop. Isn't that interesting? So I think, obviously, desktop is dead is a lazy man's way of saying, most of my time is spent in a web browser, or most of my time is spent in a terminal interacting with servers. But when I have to dip into you know the OS, air quotes around the OS, then I already know x so i don't want to learn something new x being the a variable in this case not not x11 on linux I'm, I'm just saying i already know something so i don't want to learn something new so those little things whether it's how do i copy and paste a file or how do i configure my network how do i how do i select my wi-fi network or how do i adjust volume or whatever it is like for those little things they people don't want to learn something new and so when they say the desktop is dead what they're saying is that they, they're finding themselves using fewer and fewer downloadable applications, but they still want the same experience, because sometimes they do use downloadable applications, and they, they don't want to change, they don't want to learn anything new. So, in other words, obviously, the phrase desktop is dead is not correct, it is, very, it is, it is a, a lazy statement that does not mean what its words actually mean. And and I guess it's also a lazy business statement, right? It's it's an assertion saying that, well, the desktop isn't as important as it used to be. We we don't want to invest as much money in, in building this environment because it's just not that important anymore. Because people are, are really concentrating, you know, if if you look at the, the time spent by our users, it's it's heavily biased towards this and this and so why would we invest much into the desktop? Now again I'm no business person, and I, I still don't understand little things. Like, if that was something that you were that you had noticed as a business person, why would you not just give up your desktop department entirely and pilfer some open source project and say, okay, this is the new desktop that we're going to ship 
Like, literally, that's what I would do. Again, I'm not a business person. I would just, I would say, okay, our desktop department isn't important anymore. Well, we're going to throw it out. We're going to use this free product from open source. We'll, we'll assign, like, two developers to it to keep it, to, to keep it, keep it sort of afloat, to customize it for our purposes, to rebrand it as, as the Windows desktop or the Mac desktop. And that's what we'll ship to people. GNOME on every Mac and KDE on every Windows box. Like, why wouldn't you do that? That's what I would do. But not a business person. Okay, so the desktop is clearly still in the game for whatever reason. I don't, I don't understand it from a business perspective, and I don't understand it from a person perspective, since everyone's telling me that the desktop is, is useless, and they actually do all of their work on a phone anyway, which obviously is not true. So the question becomes, maybe is why bother using the Linux desktop? Why among all the all the the choices out there, all, you know, of the other two choices, why should someone use Linux specifically? Well, I think the Linux desktop is in a unique position now because the proprietary desktops, the Finder and Windows, are moving gradually away from user control. By which I mean the desktops of these systems are practically becoming subscription services, and I think that's probably the direction they are going to continue to move, to the point that the desktop that you purchase with a computer by default is going to be basically entirely out of your control. There are going to be changes made to it that you have no say in whatsoever, and you're just going to have to ad adapt. Now, to be fair, people do this really, really well. People complain about it loudly. They threaten to leave they, they become outraged, they refuse to upgrade for a matter of nine months, and then finally everyone acquiesces. It's, it's the ebb and flow of technology, and the computer companies know this. So they can do whatever they want to to people's desktops. They can take out whatever feature or take away whatever amount of control they want to, and they know people aren't going to actually migrate away. I think worst-case scenario, people migrate away from say, Windows to Finder, or from Finder to Windows, and that's that's the biggest threat, possibly, that these companies have, and I don't know how much of a threat that really is. I don't know the relationship between Microsoft and Apple, but it seems to me, as long as they have the same user base, they can kind of trade back and forth without really there being a, a, a difference, you know? Like, it's still the same pool of users, right? You still have got that that 80% number or whatever it is of of all users, computer users. Does it really matter which company the people go to? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But it seems like they've kind of hit their strides. Anyway, again, not a business person. I have no idea how it all works. Point is, though, I do know how proprietary desktops work. Well, I don't, and that's actually kind of the salient point, but I, I do know how open source desktops work. And open desktops, uh, open source desktops, they're not, they're not under user control either, really, right? We, we, we frequently in the open source world like to talk about, well, how, how much we have control over things and how, how configurable things are and how you can have things just the way that you want them and so on. But in real life, it takes a dev at the end of the day. If, if you want to change something in a desktop, it, it's, it takes a developer. Here's a great example. I've known lots and lots of people. It's a good statement. Um, I've known lots of people in my life, and and I've known a lot of people who have 
either switched to or have flirted with sh uh, switching to Linux. And one of the things, and typically because of the group that I that I was hanging around with for much of my life, uh, typically it was it was they were Mac users, specifically switching to Linux. That was kind of the area that I would I would run into users a lot of, and they would they would be switching maybe, or they would look at it. One of the features that they always wanted without fail was the ability to select a file and give it a label. Now, a label in, in the Mac world is a color, well, traditionally, it was a colored background for the text of the name of a file. So if you have a file named foo, you would uh, right-click on it, I guess, or maybe you'd click on it, and you would go to some menu, and you would give it, I think they were called labels, they might be called tags, but I think they were called labels, and you, you could give it a, a specific color, and it would it would it would shade the background of of the word foo with blue or red or green or yellow or whatever and i've known several several people who use that method to organize their files so when they open up a window in their finder they see a whole window full of of red and blue files and they know that the ones that are colored red are done and the ones that are blue are still in progress or or whatever their color scheme might mean. And you might think, well, that's a horrible way to organize files because it's purely visual. It is specific to a, uh, one file system, and it just seems like very tenuous. If that, if that label disappears, how can you tell one from the other? And I learned that pretty quickly myself, switching from Mac to Linux as I did. I learned that those labels don't migrate at all because they're, they're hidden or they're they're stored in, in extended file attributes that, that, that don't exist on other file systems. But people want that feature. I've, I've had lots of people say, well, is there any way I can get that feature on Linux? And honestly, there, there really hasn't been so far. There have been requests for it. I've seen bug reports about it, feature requests, and just no one on Linux seems to be interested in supporting that kind of feature. It's been years. I mean, this has been, this has been my experience since at least 2008, people have mentioned that to me as a feature they would love to see on Linux. And in the back of my mind, I keep thinking, oh, I should grab the sources for Dolphin or the sources for Nautilus and take a look at it and just see if there's a way that I could figure out how to make colored backgrounds and then and then do a, a merge request. And I haven't, but I did look into it a little bit. And there are extended file attributes on at least the EXT um, file systems. I mean, probably in others, but the ones that I was looking at were the ext file systems. They're extended file attributes. You could you could create a flag in there, and then have your file manager check those flags and see if a flag saying you know label red or whatever the flag would be, and then you could make your file manager presumably display the the file with a red file name or a red background. So I guess I couldn't. I can't. I can't do a variation here. People want very specific things. Although interestingly, the new Mac OS, if if I'm unless I'm mistaken, I believe later iterations of it, more recent iterations don't actually color the background. So people for 10 years have told me the only way I can use this operating system is if I can have files with the file names having colored background. And that's that's been a very strict requirement, right? And I've I've given them other options sometimes. Like I, I have tried. I've I've said, well what if you right click on the thing and go to properties and then in um in 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 GNOME for a while you could add 
little icons to to your and possibly right now i don't know but but certainly historically you could add little decorations so you could put like a little star next to the icon to your file icon or you could attach a a little flag or a little rabbit or something like that you know you could always attach something to the icon thought uh, i said what about that well, that's not good enough i want the colored background okay well, what about here in kde where you can actually change the icon itself you could just go to properties and you could say okay well instead of using this default icon i want to use this other icon so would that work no that's not what i want i want the colored background okay so now of course on modern mac they actually don't have the colored backgrounds anymore i think i, I could be wrong but i think they just put a little color circle by the name so it's not even it's not good enough to do a workaround on linux but it's it's fine if the Mac desktop does it, then you're willing to work around what you want. Is that right? Apparently that's right. So anyway, that's a, I digress. Point being, on open source desktops, you don't really have user control either, because it takes a developer to sit down and make some minor change that you insist you want. We're just not at the level, and I've complained about this or, or commented on this before, we're not at the point in computing where those little changes, those little insignificant minor I'd like it to go this way instead of that way. Those little changes are are not user configurable unless a developer has figured out how to make it an option. So be it. The good thing on open source desktops is, however, that because they are diverse, they discourage the creation of a monoculture. That is to say, if you're the one person out of a hundred that wants your desktop to work in some other way, you want it to work such that when you drag your mouse to the edge of your screen, your desktop automatically switches to the next desktop. That's crazy. Well, it might be crazy, but there's a desktop that does that. And there are, there are examples that proliferate. The, you want a different file manager? There are dozens to choose from. You want a different network manager? You got a couple to choose from. And on and on. Every, every element of a desktop, you, you have at least choice to find to, to at least approximate your preferred workflow. And on proprietary desktops, you just, you, as they move away from configurability, they, they, they are losing that more than ever. They've never been great at it, understand, but they're losing it more than ever. And I guess ultimately the thing about the Linux desktop is that if you don't learn it, you'll never love it, which is a weird thing to say, but it's actually really, really true. If you think about, for instance, I don't know, in my own life, I have an example. Dvorak keyboard versus QWERTY. Like most people, I grew up using the QWERTY keyboard. I was quite good at it, very, very fast. And while I knew that a lot of people spoke highly of the Dvorak keyboard, there was really no clear reason to learn a different keyboard. I was quite good at what I knew. It would slow me down to learn something different. And so I, I just didn't do that for a very long time. And then for whatever reason, I decided, finally, to sit down and learn the Dvorak keyboard. And it was miserable for quite a few months. And then it was even more miserable for probably another whole, a whole other year, maybe a year and a half, where I was kind of in this place where, well, I, yeah, I did learn the Dvorak keyboard, but it's not actually all that great. It's just, I just happened to learn it. It didn't change my life. And then gradually, the more and more I got into the Dvorak keyboard, the more and more I see that it is actually quite a lot more efficient, and I, I do enjoy it a lot more than a QWERTY keyboard. 
And frankly, between you and me, dear listener, the same thing happened to me with, with Linux itself. Back back several, several years ago now, back in 2006 or whatever it was, when I started really playing around with Linux, it was as an alternative to the Unix environment that I'd sort of built up on my Mac. That was what Linux was. It was the... It was... It was this other thing that I could play around with safely without having to ever go into the Windows world, but I'd still get this alternative computing experience. And it was something that I that was harmless and just kind of off to the side and wasn't real I wasn't serious about it at all. And I used to actually I had to assure a few of my friends, my hardcore like Mac friends, that I wasn't I wasn't switching to Linux. I wasn't cheating on Mac. I I was just messing around with Linux because it was an interesting experiment scientifically. And and the more I learned about Linux and the more I learned about open source and free software specifically, the more I realized that actually I wasn't just flirting with Linux. I was I was going headlong into it and and that's what I did eventually. Just dove right into it, got rid of everything else. And I haven't looked back since, I wouldn't say. I guess some people say that it's the first step and and yes, that first step is important. But at the same time, there's more than just the first step. So you take that first step and you try the Linux desktop, that's great. But if you're just dual booting, or you've just got it on a spare computer that you dug out of the closet, that's a great first step. But if it's only something you use once a month, or maybe just on the weekends, then it's potentially not something that you're going to truly get comfortable with. You're not going to ever realize the full ability, the full capability of a Linux desktop. You are going to believe forever that there's just no way to do some task on the Linux desktop. Because in your experience, when you use the Linux desktop once every other weekend, you can't figure out how to do that thing. And so you skim over it. You gloss over it for a a long while. And you just never get around to solving that one, that, 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 that problem, that thing that annoys you. You never get around to, to sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to solve this problem once and for all. And there are a lot of good examples of this. There are several examples of this. But it's, it's human nature. You're, you're, you kind of shove the annoyance down away from you until, until you get away from it and don't have to deal with it anymore. And so if if your time on a Linux desktop is infrequent, you are able to do that quite well. You can just ignore that one thing that drives you crazy until you've almost forgotten about it, and you work past it secretly. You are really, really glad to get off that Linux desktop because you, you know, somewhere in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to deal with that thing anymore. And then when you go back to the Linux desktop, it crops up again, or maybe you start to work around it. And so, so that it doesn't crop up. But you know, deep in the back of your mind, you know that you've had to work around it. And that is a different experience than when you're living in a Linux desktop and you're experiencing something that just doesn't sit right with you. And finally, 60 days in, 90 days in, whatever it is, you sit down, you have nothing better to do, and you think to yourself, you know what? Or maybe you do have something better to do. Either way, that thing crops up. And you think, you know what? I'm going to figure out how to solve that. I'm going to take the time that it, that is required, and I'm going to solve it. I had intended to work on this one project for four hours today, 
Instead, I am going to take 3.5 hours to figure out this one stupid problem. I'm going to fix it, and then it's never going to annoy me again. And when you start doing that in your Linux desktop usage, that's the turning point. That's when you have changed everything. Because now you're using the Linux desktop with such dedication and with such regularity that you want to take control of your environment once and for all. And you do. You start to take control of it. And now it's becoming yours. And you realize the, the power and strength of this thing that you have, of this configurable, understandable thing that you have access to. I'll give you an example from, from my real life. There's a, there's a thing in KDE where if you click on certain areas of the window, like normally on a desktop, you click just on that title bar to move to move the desktop the, to, to move the window around. There's a thing in the in KDE where other parts of the window in Qt really, other parts of the window can be grabbed and and used to move the window around. It's really really helpful in some things. Totally not helpful in certain other things. Specifically, QTractor. The QTractor music application. When I was using it, I would be, I would click in the timeline to drag my playhead somewhere, and nine times or seven times out of ten, I would click just outside the timeline and grab some part of the window that was grabbable, and accidentally move the the win the whole window somewhere. When all I really wanted to do was move the playhead, it used to drive me crazy. And so finally one day I sat down and decided to actually figure this out. And it turns out after a little bit of research that if you go into system settings, you go into application appearance, you click on the style tab on the left, you go into the applications tab, which is the default. And then depending on this all depends on the style of, of, of your of your applications actually. So it, this this sort of thing happens in uh, if you're using the oxygen theme. So you click on the configure button next to oxygen oxygen theme and a new window comes up, configure oxygen. And at the, the bottom of that first window, there's a, a selection called Windows Drag Mode. And there are three choices. You can drag windows from title bar only, drag from title bar, menu bar, and toolbars, or drag windows from all empty areas. So I set that on drag from title bar only, clicked OK, and the problem went away. The problem was no more for the rest of my life. Ever since that day, my Linux desktop has worked exponentially better for me. Would that be a killer feature for someone else that you can drag from all empty areas? Yeah, that could be great for someone who doesn't use QTractor and so who never accidentally misclicks on a, on a timeline and accidentally drags their whole application off their screen. But for me, it was killing my workflow and it took me to sit down to give dedicated time to solving that problem. And then from then on, the Linux desktop was, was completely different for me in a weird sort of subtractive way, right? It was like, it was everything I wanted except this one thing. Take that one thing away. Now it is everything I wanted. But my point here is that that takes hours of usage to reach that point. It's just the way we are as humans. For you to get rankled enough to sit down and change something about the environment, it takes time. It takes, it takes hard knocks. So if you keep ignoring the Linux desktop and you keep shoving it aside and you're only using it when you need to use it or, or when you get really, really bored with Finder or, or Windows, you, you might dip into the Linux desktop. 
and then you uncover all the things about it that you hate, and you quickly walk away. Well, that's then you will always hate the Linux desktop. That's a surefire way to never get comfortable with that system. So if, in other words, if you're one of the people who are thinking about switching, and you think, well, I would switch, but it needs to, there needs to be some, some things that are polished. There's a couple things that I just don't like, a couple things that just take too long. Then it's always going to be that way until you take the plunge beyond that first step and start using it on a daily basis and start taking that extra time to solve the things that you don't like. It might mean switching your entire desktop. Stop using KDE. Start using GNOME. Stop using GNOME. Start using KDE. Find something different completely. Maybe you'll like Cinnamon. Maybe you'll like Mate. Who knows? The thing is, you have to live in it to get used to it. And if that's something that you want, if you want to get used to it, if you want to get comfortable with it, then there's going to be some of that initial time where you're still learning. And I've said it before, I'll probably continue to say it for a long time, you've had 20 years, whoever you are, to learn the Windows desktop or the Finder. It is unreasonable to expect you, yourself, to fall in love with the Linux desktop after one month, or to feel comfortable with the Linux desktop after one month, or even a year. It takes longer to get comfortable with something, especially after you're already comfortable with another thing. But the thing is that if you try it, you just might like it. That's the editorial. Let's go get a cup of coffee, and then we'll talk about Util Linux. got my coffee. You should have coffee by now. This coffee that I'm drinking today, I'm going to just mention that through this show actually I've kind of I've kind of noticed because I consume such a vast amount of coffee during the day. I've kind of noticed that it makes more of an impact if I switch up the the roasts throughout the day. So um th- this coffee here is it's it's really funny because it's it's the store brand of coffee. So it, it's just the grocery store brand. It's not a fancy brand. And it is it is labeled as a Jamaica Blue Mountain style coffee. So it's not only the store brand, but it's invoking a very famous coffee bean and saying it's in the style of that bean. It's not really that bean. It's just in the... I don't know how you... It's, it's, it's crazy, and I figured, well, surely this is going to be horrible stuff. And it's actually really good. It's a nice, mild kind of roast that, that it does have hints of, I, I guess it's probably a blend, maybe, of some Jamaica Blue Mountain. I'm not sure. But it, it, it actually is quite pleasant. Um, and, and, and mixing up the roasts, not, not mixing them physically, I mean changing which roast I have during the day. So I have like three different active coffee packages right now. And so I'll have one kind now and then probably in my next cup it'll be a different kind and it, I'll just c- kind of go back and forth and that way I really kind of notice the the subtle differences whereas before I was just kind of consuming coffee and I kind of felt like after the first day or two of buying a new uh, coffee you know just at my weekly grocery shopping trip um I would I would kind of lose the you know it just became just 
coffee again. It was just the 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 reason that it was different was it just kind of faded. It just became oh yeah, that's my cup of coffee. So changing changing the routine a little bit actually turns out to be quite quite satisfying. All right, so that's that's coffee talk. We're done that now, um, and now we should talk about Cal, the the little application called Cal in Linux. And this is one of those applications that I feel like when you pick up a book about Linux or Unix, they they mention Cal because hey, that's an easy one to throw at people. That's easy, right? Yeah, I guess it, it's it's kind of a weird one because it is very much just a it is a reference command. It is one of those things that you use to look at, and I don't really think I can't think of all that often, all that many times where I've, I've ever really used the output of Cal for something useful, uh, some for for a, in a pipeline. You know what I mean? I've never used the Cal command and then and piped the output to I don't know said and replaced all of the the whatever with something else. You know. It's just not something that you do. Date, on the other hand, you do that with, right? You use the output of date all the time. I use it for lots of different things, whether it's the the actual date or whether it's the, the seconds since the epoch or whatever it might be. But Cal, I don't feel like you do that. So anyway, Cal, pretty simple. It's it's really it, the man page is one screen full, uh, depending on the size of your screen, obviously. But I'm looking at a 1920 by 1080 monitor here, and it's one screen full. So if you do Cal, you get the current month. It's labeled with the month and the year, and it's it, it provides you an array of days with their dates. It's all wrong, of course, because as you know on GNU World Order, we don't use the solar. No, we don't use the we don't use the Gregorian calendar. That's what we don't use. We use the solar calendar, and or as they say, the Julian calendar. So luckily with Cal, you have that option. So you can type in Cal, C-A-L, and then dash dash Julian, and you get the current month, whatever a month is, with the numbers, the, 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 the count of the day. So May 2019 started on a Wednesday. That was the 121st day of the year. It is currently Sunday. Of uh, in May, the last Sunday in May, and that is day 146, which I told you at the beginning of the episode. It's pretty useful. That That's what I have come to use Cal for mostly now, because I can't get anything else on my system. Weren't we just talking about configurability and how it takes a developer? can't get anything else on my system to use Julian numbering. I would love it if I could, but Cal is the only one I can actually seem to get that, that output from. Okay, so um, other other options for Cal. Cal-3, the number 3, provides you with or returns the previous month, the current month, and the next month. You can combine that with, for instance, Cal-3-Julian, or just dash J if you're lazy like me, and you get the three-month array, previous, current, next, not as Gregorian dates, but as Julian days of the of the year. Are there other options? Yeah, there are a couple of different options. There's dash one for just the single month. That's actually the default. There's dash dash months to display some number of months. So if I did like K 
cal dash dash months, and then four, then I get four dates in my output. There's dash dash Sunday to display the sun Sunday as the first day of the week, and dash dash Monday to display Monday as the first day of the, the month or uh, the the week. Dash dash Julian already covered it. Dash dash year display a calendar for the whole year, and and of course you could do cal dash dash year. And then let's do 20, uh, let's do 2012. Now it's showing me the whole year for 2012. It's very useful, I'm sure. Uh, dash dash color, colorize the output. The optional argument when can be auto, never, or always. It seems odd. I don't exactly know when you would, how you would decide what what color color scheme you when you would want to see colors auto, never, or always. I guess it may be depending on your terminal type, I'm not sure. Uh, and then dash dash version to get the version. And that's it. That's that's the cal date, really. Single parameter specifies the year to be displayed. Note the year must be fully specified. Cal 89 will not display a calendar for year for 1989. It will show you the year 89. You can be quite specific in what calendar you want to see. So if I do cal, I'll just do dash j to keep it in Julian for myself. I could say 2112. And that would show me the year 2112. Now I could also say cal j uh, one space 2112. And that shows me just January of 2112. I could go further than that and say that I want to see the calendar for for January of 21112 with the I don't know 21st day highlighted. Then it would be cal j 21 one twenty one one two and now I have January of twenty one one twelve twenty one one two with the twenty first day highlighted on the calendar and that's that's about all you can do with calendar that is that is literally the entire command i mean th what I just did and then all the options that I talked about earlier okay next up is c h r t c h r t has something to do with controlling processes of uh in real time I do not know off the top of my head what it stands for. I'm trying to find it. Can't. Maybe it's change in real time. Maybe that, that sounds like it could be. Yeah, let's call it that. I, I don't know if that's actually true. But uh, chrt manipulate the manipulate the real time attributes of a process. So chrt sets or retrieves the real time scheduling attributes of an existing PID. PID, process ID, or runs a command, a given command that you, you provide it with the given attributes. So you can do it before or after a command has been issued. So let's mess around with this a little bit. Let's take a look at how this how this goes. So we'll, we'll, we'll start a process that we don't really care about, and we'll call it sleep. Oh, not, not just sleep. We'll call it sleep 3000. There we go. That, that should keep that terminal busy for a while. So the first thing we should do is get is is know what the PID of sleep is. So we've just launched it. Uh, so I could do a pgrep for the for the the term sleep. That that sort of greps my the the output of well it greps for a, a, the PID of a process called sleep. It looks like five six eight eight is the number that it's it's given that particular thing. I could also do PID of PIDOF space sleep. That ought to give me the same output. Yep, it does. So those are two common ways to find out that information. We've we've talked about this in a previous episode, in, in the episode about finding different processes. 
It was episode 30 of season 12. I just paused and looked it up, so that's if you need to review that one. 12.30 is the one to, to go to. It, it's the whole thing about, like, PS, PSAUX, return, look through the list. There it is, 5688. Okay, so we've got our PID, is the point. And 5688 is the one that is the sleep process. So to interact with that PID, with CHRT, we do a couple of different things. First of all, we can get a report about the current state of that PID. So chrt space dash dash PID 5688. So that's the one we want to introspect. Hit return. And we get PID 5688's current scheduling policy is sched underscore other. And PID 5688's current scheduling priority is zero. Now this might sound familiar to you a little bit if you've ever looked at the output of top or htop. I prefer htop personally, but whatever you use, you may remember that, for instance, I'm going to, let's launch htop right now. I'm going to do an f3, no, f6 uh, to sort, and I'm going to tell it to sort by PID, and then I'm going to, I'm going to search f3 for sleep here we go five five six eight eight sleep its priority is 20 its nice level is zero so we'll just we'll keep that in mind we'll have that in the back of our head as we continue to mess around with chrt um so we could we can find out a little bit more about some of the different kinds of scheduling priority uh, the the different levels of it the different settings, I guess. CHRT, actually, what's the long command? Dash dash max. So we'll do CHRT dash dash max with no argument. We'll just we'll just do that. And that reports to us that SCED other is 0, 0. Min max priority is 0, 0. SCED FIFO, or FIFO, I don't know really how to say that, um, FIFO, min max zero, uh, 1 to 99. Sked RR, min max is 199. Sked batch is 00. zero. Sked idle is 00. zero. So what that means is that there there are these presets. There are these um, these sets of, of priority minimums and maximums. The policies is the word I was looking for. That uh, you can set you you can group PIDs into. I didn't know these existed until I started looking into the CHRT command. So this is all news to me. They don't have man pages that I could find. So I don't know exactly who decides them or where they come from. Haven't looked into it. Point being is CHRT lets you modify within a certain uh, range what the what the level of, of some process is. So for instance, the default policy level for, for the process that we that I launched, process 5688, was sched other. And we, we learned that sched other has a min and max of zero and zero, so there's not a whole lot of wiggle room there. But there are others that we have to choose from. And one of them that looks pretty good, I think, is uh, RR. Now, if I go to man chrt again, RR is, is described as being, what is it described as being? Uh, RR is set scheduling to RR. Oh, it doesn't actually say what it is. I thought I read somewhere what that stood for. Oh well. We know that, that from the chrt-m command, the min and max of RR is 1, and, uh, 1 to 99. So if we, if we want to set our 
process to something a little bit more flexible, we could do that. Now for this, we to set it, we need to be root. Up until this point, I've been using chrt as a user. So I'll become root, or you can use sudo if you have that. And then we'll do chrt space dash dash rr, because according to the man page, dash dash rr sets scheduling policy to sketch rr, which of course opens up our range from 0 to 0 to 1 to 99. And then we'll, this is a little bit confusing, this threw, threw me off, dash dash pid, and then the number that you want to change it to. So I'm going to change it to 10, pretty arbitrarily. And then the pid that you want to change, 5688. To print the information, you just see, you do chrt dash dash pid 5688. But to change it, the arguments to dash dash pid become different. And that is dash dash pid, and then the number that you want to change the priority to, and then the pid itself. That's pretty confusing, I think. Don't love it, but maybe there's a reason for it, or maybe it's just something that, you know, it works for everybody else. So now if we go back over to htop, and we look back at our 5688 thing, uh, we see that the priority has indeed changed to negative 11. And that's been consistent with with my with my experience of chrt i mean my experience being the you know 30 minutes yesterday afternoon while i was trying to figure out what it did uh it, it's it's offset by one pretty much no matter what you do so if you change it to for instance 78 then you'll go back and look at it and it'll be uh 79 negative 79 and so on so just offset it yourself or live with the the one offset whichever you you prefer but that's that's it chrt that is chrt in action it is happening it changes things in real time okay next up is call c-o-l not call but call uh it's not column either there there's a different command called column i don't think it's in utilinux but oh it is it is in utilinux this is not that command this is just call c-o-l this is a weird one probably should should be pretty quick it filters text. It filters out reverse and half-reverse line feeds so that the output is in the correct order with only forward and half-forward line feeds. It also replaces any white spaces, white space characters with tabs where possible. This can be useful in processing the output of inroth and tbl. Okay, I've never used really directly inroth or tbl, so have no context for this whatsoever. However, I can give you a proof of concept that this command does a thing. So let's arbitrarily pick a, a man page. So let's do man, um, oh boy, now, now I can't think of a single command. How about uh, man, I, I want it to be a beefy one, I don't want something really simple. So let's do man uh, ffmpeg. Yeah, that's huge, okay, great. So we'll do man ffmpeg, and then we'll redirect it into blah. Oh, and this is unexpected. This was not something that I'd planned on, actually. So I'm getting lots of errors, two errors, but they're long errors. It says standard input warning, uh, some some text, can't break line. And then 1917, can't break line. So two errors about not being able to break a line. So that's actually unrelated to any of this, and call will not help us fix it. So what I'm going to do instead is do man width equals 180. That's man width all in capitals and then man ffmpeg, and then pipe that through call, and then pipe, uh, redirect that to blah. So what's happening there is that man, man pages are generally formatted to 80 characters per, per line. 
Now, my console in KDE has much more than 80 characters per line, but I'm sending... So, so normally, it would, it would send FFmpeg man page to my screen without any error. But what I'm doing is I'm doing a man FFmpeg, and I'm sending it to a pipe. Pipe has no native width, so it just uses the default 80. Turns out FFmpeg man page, I've just now learned, like literally as we're recording this, just learned that the FFmpeg manual has certain lines probably tables that are that have to be more than 80 columns wide in order to be reproduced accurately so in order to override the default 80 width of a pipe i'm setting an environment variable before my command man width equals 180 i just i just made up 180 i could do uh, 1 133 man ffmpeg and then pipe through call and then redirect through blah no errors, good. So now I'm going to do Emacs blah, and what I see in my on in in Emacs is quite quite horrific to be honest. It's it's the it's the man page, but after practically every every other letter in the summary in the command summary and the title synopsis and the name, there are these weird uh, caret the the thing above the six on the American English keyboard, caret H, caret app capital H. And people who've been around Linux long enough knows that caret H is a is a control character for backspace. So I don't know the function of those backspaces. I, I honestly don't understand why they're there. It, it presumably has something to do with Inroth and probably something very, very historical telling it you know, I don't know, not to, maybe it's like a non-breaking space. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why they're there, but it, it it's noticeable, and it would be problematic. Now, what I would probably do if I didn't know about call is I'd, I'd zero in on the, the caret H, and I'd replace them with emptiness in Emacs, but then unfortunately I would find that that doesn't actually solve the problem, because what happens then is that wherever there were these caret H's, the characters repeat. So, for instance, the, the first line of this man page is name. It's a title, name, and then under that is FFmpeg. Well, the word name is, if I take all those caret H's out, it's N-N-A-A-M-M-E-E. And the same thing would, would happen for synopsis and uh, for description, for any title element, and, and for a couple of lines, those, those weird control characters appear. Well, I, I wouldn't want to take the time to fix that manually. So what I'll do instead is invoke... So I'll do the man width uh, equals 133 man ffmpeg pipe call dash dash no dash back spaces. And then redirect that to blah again. Now I'll open up blah, and it looks exactly as I would expect. No bothersome control characters in my in my text. No duplicated characters in my titles it's it's just exactly what you would expect it to be so it's correctly translated that man page into plain text the interesting thing about this if i do that uh, that again without the no backspaces so the the messed up re, re, reproduction the 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 mistaken version and then do less blah it looks normal it looks perfectly perfectly appropriate looks fine but if I look at it in Emacs, I see it as it truly is, and it's it's a mess, completely useless. 
and I'm assuming, I could be wrong, but I'm assuming that's because Les is sort of pre-programmed to decipher the the Inroff notation or the results of, of translated Inroff notation. I'm not sure. I, I haven't looked that deeply into it. There are other options. Uh, there's dash dash tabs to output tabs instead of multiple spaces. There's dash dash spaces to output multiple spaces instead of tabs. There's dash dash lines to buffer some number of lines in memory. And then dash dash find to permit half forward line feeds. Normally characters destined for a half line boundary are printed on the following line. So sounds like some kind of line wrap um, setting. So if I do man ffmpeg again, Oh, I have to do it with that man width setting first. Okay, so man width equals, uh, let's try 100 and see if we get any errors or if, I don't know what the threshold is really. I don't know what ffmpeg wants. Man ffmpeg pipe call dash dash tabs and then I want dash dash no dash backspaces as well. And then redirect that to blah. Didn't give me an error, so I guess 100 is okay. Emacs blah. Now, in theory, you would think that I would find a bunch of tabs in here because I passed the dash dash tabs parameter, but that is not what I'm finding. And I'm going to assume, and I, I could be correct, I could be incorrect, and I, I can't, I haven't thought of a good way to test it even. Um, and, and there's also this little thing about not really caring that much, but uh, it could be that there weren't tab characters where you would think there were tab characters. And that's one of those annoying things about spaces and tabs, is that you can never really, you're never really sure where where a tab is. It's really difficult to determine whether something was supposed to be a tab or not. And I just don't understand why people like tabbed characters, or invisible control characters at all. I mean, I'm sure they're technically necessary, but boy, do they drive me crazy. Because they turn up in the worst of places, and then you don't know what to do with them. So anyway, that's that's the call command, and really the the only way I've gotten it to sort of produce results is with the dash dash no backspaces. But I, I admit there are probably things in in Roth that I'm not really considering. I mean, I've written man pages before, but it's not a conscious thing, right? It's not something that I I think, oh, good, I'm using Groff or in Roth or trough. It's just you just write it based on what you see. You, you look at it in man, if it looks right, you push it. That's that's kind of my my theory on, on those very old markup syntaxes. So there you go. That's, that's call. I think we're probably pretty close to the end here, but I may as well mention really quickly, because it would be an awkward place to stop otherwise, the call CRT command, which is, it's like call. It filters inRoF output for CRT previewing. I don't have a CRT. I couldn't. I, I, I don't need this. But there is an interesting option in there, dash dash no underline, dash dash no dash underlining, which suppresses all underlining. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's because on CRTs, it was probably uh, very difficult to get the, the resolution such that underlining, you know, didn't look distorted or blurry or something. That's, that's my guess. I don't know for sure. But anyway, if I do if I do use call CRT instead of call, so if I'm doing the same thing, man width equals I did 100 last time. Let's do 97 this time. I'm gonna get 
get down as close to 80 as I can. And then man ffmpeg pipe call CRT dash dash no dash underlining redirect to blah. Oop, 97 was too much. 98? 98 is too much. 99. Nope, it's got to be 100. 100 for no errors on ffmpeg manual. Okay, there we go. So now if I look at the the new blah file, I see the ffmpeg the ffmpeg window here, the uh, file here, and interestingly in Emacs there are no backspaces, so call CRT apparently removes those automatically. And then if I continue down, there are some really cool like flowcharts, ASCII flowcharts in in FFmpeg man page of, of like sort of pipelining and stuff. And all it's mangled it's completely mangled so the, the all the underlines are gone all the um, side what are they forward and backward slashes are gone so call crt oh no the the slashes are there slashes are there sorry i didn't realize there there apparently are no slashes in that particular one but in lower ones there are slashes so i'm assuming it's just by design but anyway yeah the underlines are gone so all all the underscores are removed from the from this particular man page, or at least contiguous underscores. I, I can't find an instance of something that's supposed to have an underscore in it that, that's been either removed or retained either way, not in this particular one. But there you go. There's CRT, or call CRT in action as well. Now, the next group starts with more column or call commands, but they are they're not within the same group. So call and call CRT sound like things that are going to manipulate columns of text files, and I guess they technically are, but not in the way that we think of a column, like in the awk traditional sort of like, oh, this is a column, this is a spreadsheet column. Not that way, obviously, right? Well, immediately thereafter are two other commands that seem like they would be related to columns, call rm and column, and, and those are talking about traditional columns. So we'll get to those next time. And hey, until next time, thank you very much for listening. I will see you online, possibly. And if not, I'll see you next episode. Listening to the GNU World Order Og Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.
Bill, you fellas ought to have a first aid kit around here. Yeah, except we wouldn't know how to use it. <laughs> <laughs>